Well, we went through our uh, time so quick. Uh, we're we're going to be out of here early, as I say. We'll beat the Methodists to the lunch counter. You know, uh, haven't said that in a long time. Um, last week, I kind of did a uh, uh, parenthesis in our series on the worldview and mindset. And the reason for that is that the uh, <clears throat> the worldview of the scriptures is contained in a great deal of what we do as believers. And so much of what the spiritual disciplines do reinforces uh, that worldview in us. And so I um, did a little two-part, uh, with today being the second part, on the prayer of serenity, a prayer that I believe is helpful for us for several reasons. One, it's based on solid biblical content. Second, it's framed within the biblical worldview and is consistent with the biblical mindset, which I've been talking about. And it, while it ties to the spiritual discipline of prayer, it really works with this series that, that we're doing. Last week, I demonstrated the short form that most people know um, uh, is based on biblical teachings. And I recommended that the prayer be memorized used as a tool for your prayers, and even uh, displayed in your home as part of the religious decor uh, of the home. Uh, just for those of you who, who weren't here last week, <clears throat> the, the first part of the short form of the prayer uh, is usually attributed to St. Francis or Thomas Aquinas or Augustine. And the truth is, it, it's a fairly recent prayer, but there are parts of it phrases connected to it that go back to very early historic times in both Judaism and Christianity. But its present form, generally attributed to the American Lutheran pastor and theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, um, around the 20s, I think, when he penned it. And he believed that it was original to him, though he thought it was consistent with, with those phrases from before. Its content goes back to antiquity, but its form is more recent. Uh, and it's become a very well-used prayer because of its simplicity, sometimes misunderstood. And uh, while it's got biblical foundations of truth, it uh, sometimes gets used outside of those foundations, so I thought it would be good to teach on it. It's become the primary prayer of the recovery movement, uh, and AA, uh, those of you who are familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, this prayer is, is used a, a lot in that context. Uh, but I think it's one that should be used by, by every seriously religious person. So let me just repeat real briefly the short form, the first part of the prayer, uh, and what I said about it last week just in a couple of sentences. Begins with, oh, and you have it on the back of your bulletin, so you're set. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. This really is a tranquility, a prayer for peace and tranquility, to be able to accept what we don't have control over. And that, for many of us, is a problem. We, we really want to control things, uh, and we want to have control, or we want them controlled. And this is about having peace when you don't have control, and that is something we really need. Um, the second part is to ask for the courage to change the things I can. This is probably the part of the prayer that has been the most abused. 
because in our American worldview, in our Western cultural worldview, we're all crusaders. And we're on a crusade for something that we're interested in. And we want the courage to do these great things to change the world. And we're right back to the first one. This is not what the prayer is about. This is a prayer for courage. And courage here is really the idea of enduring uh, the struggles and the suffering that happens when you are doing the right thing. When you are doing what God has said to do. The person, the thing that you're supposed to change is you. And so the struggle is to be obedient to God and to endure that struggle of obedience to God's commands. And then the third part of the prayer is the wisdom to know the difference. And uh, James really gives us an understanding of two kinds of wisdom. There is a wisdom that is below, there a wisdom of man. The wisdom of man tends to be jealous and envious and striving because it's part of that, I know the answer, I'm wise, follow me kind of thing. But James says that the, the peace of God is, uh, the wisdom of God is peaceable and it's by those who make peace. There is a quiet wisdom that is tranquil because it knows that we can't change things, endures the obedience of the commandments and the suffering that comes from that, and then uh, understands those things in knowing the difference. And so uh, the wisdom of God is not the wisdom of man, and it has a very different uh, sense. You will know that a person is a wise person, not because they're striving to let you know they're wise, but because when everybody is in chaos, they are calm because they know the peace of God that passes all understanding. They are obedient to God and willing to endure the struggle of that obedience. And they therefore know that all of this stuff is going to pass with the using. So this prayer then continues. And this is a... Uh, um, this is the part of the prayer that you don't see much except for one, one part of it. Uh, the very first line uh, is kind of this one day at a time stuff that people talk about. And the, and the prayer goes on and says, <clears throat> uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, Accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. Taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. And that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Really good stuff here. And so I want to talk about that and give you the biblical basis for these statements and try to admonish you as much as I can and encourage you to try to live with that because this is within the context of the biblical worldview. So we'll start with living one day at a time. Now, you guys are Americans, so you know this, but we have a tendency to live life in the past and in the future, very seldom in the present. We live with the guilt of the past or the problems of the past or the glories of the past. 
And those things tend to make us dissatisfied now, uh, either with, I need to fix this, or I, I'm still guilty for this, or it used to be so much better and now it's terrible. And that focus on the past keeps you, robs you from being in the present. Or we move towards the future. Boy, I'm, I'm building towards something. One day it's going to be there. My ship will come in. I'm going to have this. I, it's going to be all great. And when you're doing, living in that kind of anticipation, you're also not living in the present. And one of the problems of an American worldview is that we're so focused on the past and the present because we've got this historical perspective of where we're headed that we don't actually live in the moment, in the present. And the Bible really does teach us that uh, we have to somewhat live in the day. So I want you to look at a couple of passages. One we've already sung about, uh, Matthew chapter 6. Beginning at verse 25. Whether you're thinking about the problems of the past or the difficulties of the future, these verses uh, 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 are connected to that. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for the body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, they reap, they don't reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? You actually can reduce it. Um, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. So if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And you know, I translate that, oh, short-sighted ones, because we're not seeing fully eternal things. Do not worry then, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things. For your father, uh, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the, His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You have the energy and the presence of mind to deal with today. And that's all you have. Because yesterday is over. And there's nothing you're going to do that changes yesterday. And tomorrow is not yet. If it is at all. And so really today is what you've got. And we tend not to live in that day at a time. We have, our tendency is to be so future-oriented because of our Western mindset that we begin to make plans, uh, and in those plans, we often leave the Lord out of them. So I'd like you to turn to James, that book of wisdom that we keep coming back to. James chapter 4.
chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Everybody's got to have a mission statement, right? Everybody's got to have a plan. Those who fail to plan, plan to fail, right? We are full of that. <clears throat> Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now this congregation probably is more aware than most that life changes on us. You're going along just fine, thinking you're healthy, and then you get some really bad news. Uh, you think your kids are fine, and you get some bad news. We, we really don't have any uh, control of the future. And I, I spent some time uh, in the last year thinking about all of the times in my life when I planned my future. I used to every year give Dr. Ellis a five-year plan um, for the School of Behavioral Science. <coughs> Most of it never happened. And a lot of it got pushed off. The reality is I spend a lot of time in Plan B. Plan A never seems to happen. And the tendency is for us to think that by planning, we're going to make it so. But the reality is uh, we, don't, we don't know that. Our life is a vapor. Our life can change in just a few moments. And so we need to uh, take the idea that if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But we become arrogant. We become proud of our plans. And in that, we begin to do evil. And we are not to do that. So James warns us about this over-future orientation or the too much of the past... The scriptures want us to live more in the present. This is the day that we have to live. This is the day of our stewardship. This is the day of our obedience. I can, I can walk with God today. If I didn't walk with Him tomorrow, I can walk with Him today. If I walked with Him yesterday, I can walk with Him today. Uh, and hope that if the Lord wills, I will walk with Him tomorrow. But today I have. And so we really need to begin to, to live one day at a time. Now the next line is interesting. It's almost like it's redundant. But it isn't. Enjoying one moment at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Moments, a small people, not the whole day. Now we're really living in the now. And the book that probably addresses this best of all is the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I could go to several places in that book. Um, it's one of my favorite books. I was, I was taught this book wrongly. Uh, I was taught that it is the, uh, the cynicism of a person who has no faith. Because it talks about all of life being vanity and meaningless and everything falls apart. And then as, as I got wise and decided I would look at this, because it was written by a wise guy. Uh, he's got life pegged. Life is tough and then you die, right? 
and and you'll build something up and your son or the person who follows you will tear it down. Uh, I have watched professors build incredible reputations at Cal Baptist over the 30 years I've been there and the years before that I watched. And a lot of them have their name on buildings and nobody knows who they are. Those of us who remember them know who they are. But the others don't. Somebody retires or, or dies and uh, we think, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll never be over them at, at the school. And within two semesters, the students don't know who that professor is. The people whose lives you impact will remember you. But the world isn't going to remember us. We'll be, we'll be outdated very quickly. So how do I live in the moment and how do I enjoy the moment? Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Or in these days it could be the woman who comes after you, right? Or the 12 year old that comes after you. You know, and so as you get older, everybody looks like they're a teenager. You know? The reality is, uh, there's nothing here that's permanent. Just not there. So when he's doing it, when he's building it so it will stand, like the pyramids, he realizes, I, this isn't even worth it. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored, acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them, this too is vanity. And great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and all his striving which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Worried about the project. Worried about the project. Worried about the project. And the project's going to get taken over by someone else who's going to mess it up. Feel the joy? The joy is in verse 24. And this verse gets repeated throughout the book. And it is the key to living in the moment. It's not thinking about what's going to be left. And what's going to be maintained. And what you're accomplishing. And all of that stuff. That in the American culture. That is, that is everything for us. Here it is. There is nothing better for a man. Than to eat. And drink. And tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen. That it is from the hand of God. For who can eat. And who can have enjoyment. Without God. For to the person who is good in his sight. He has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner. He has given the task of gathering and collecting. So that he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving of wind. Now, let me, let me give you the key to all of this. Today, when you sit down at lunch, 
If your world is collapsing on you and crashing in on you and you're thinking about all the stuff you've got to do this week or all the stuff that didn't get done last week and all that kind of stuff, you are missing the moment. The moment is when you sit down and you eat something, enjoy what you're eating. Enjoy what you're drinking. And think about the accomplishment of doing, just the labor of the doing, and don't think in terms of those long issues. Because it is in the moment that the joy happens. And that is the gift of God. I, I used to just grab food and get back to the task. And when I read this book, I realized I was missing the point. That sitting down and eating a sandwich or having a Coke or whatever you do, that's the vacation. That's the enjoyment. That's the, the, the wonderful time that we can spend talking with each other and enjoying things. And what we do, we sit around and gripe. We gripe about the food. We gripe about... We miss the point. And that's the joy of the moment. Enjoying one moment at a time. You can enjoy a moment. That's the gift of God. Because you know what? All the rest of this is going away. Someone else is going to have it. It's not going to be yours. They're going to change it. I go back every once in a while to houses that I loved. and People painted them weird colors. Put stupid flowers in front and other kinds of things. What kind of deal is that? You know? Messed up my house. It was not my house. You know? I didn't do much of it when I was there. <laughs> but the issue is we live in that future and past and we don't enjoy the moment. And this prayer reminds us to say, I need to live one day at a time. And I need to enjoy one moment at a time. Because life is hard. And that gets us to the next one. Accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. Well, wait a minute. I thought the pathway to peace was the avoidance of hardship. The people who avoid hardship do not have peace. They are constantly running from this or that or the other thing. So, American Christians, this is hard for us because we live in a culture that avoids all difficulty. And to some extent, we are to avoid difficulties. So the problem is, how far do we take this? Well, let's see how far we're to avoid difficulties. Again, in Ecclesiastes... This time, chapter 11. <clears throat> There's a great wisdom in this, uh, in this book. Um, and every time I, I read it, I think I want to do another series on it. It's, it's just incredible stuff. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 8. Indeed, if a man should have many years, let him rejoice in them all. And let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. So we have to grab those moments of enjoyment, those simple things. I get a lot of those here. The, the kids, their comments sometimes. Now, they're not great comments for the parents. I get that. Because when my kids made comments, I was, you know, Linda and I were... But I love the comments of the kids, you know. It's just 
there's an innocence there. There's something about watching a kid play and, and do things that's just, just wonderful. You get to enjoy that moment. So he says, uh, remember the days of darkness are going to be a lot of bad days. So when you're having a good day, you need to catch that. Now, my, my way of doing that is lower your expectations. I find that the people who have high expectations are the most miserable people. And people who have fairly low expectations are, are sometimes pleasantly surprised by what happens. Right? So that's, that's an attitude thing. So, verse 8. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. Find a moment of rejoicing in every day. And let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. Now, two time periods of life, and I want to talk about these later in this series. The, the worldview uh, that we're supposed to have, we should be following a biblical life, life uh, span, life cycle, and not the American cultural one. The American cultural one's got this huge extended adolescence thing. That's destroying generation after generation. But there are two times that are the kind of buildup of life uh, before things get too rough, which is what this is talking about. And one of those is childhood. Now, I didn't have a particularly great childhood, but I had great moments in that childhood. And those of you who come from bad backgrounds, you know that. It might have been just a moment when you were hiding, but it was a great moment. And, and so a child can have those. And you're, when you're young, you know, that 12 to 30, you think you, think you can do anything. Uh, and then at 30, reality starts kicking in, you know. And it gets worse and worse uh, in that context. So listen to what he says here. Rejoice, young man, during childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. When you're a child... And when you're young, up to about the age of 30, that is the time to explore. That is the time to try things out. But the scripture says, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for these things. So you want to do it wisely. Okay? You don't just run amok. But you do need to experience life a little bit. Then verse 10 is a critical verse. So remove grief and anger from your heart. And put away pain from your body. Because childhood and the prime of life, that youth period, are fleeting. Three things will just take all the joy out of life from you. Grief. This is why I am so grateful that in Judaism and Christianity there is a way to grieve. In a way that is not without hope. And in this last year, I've experienced that. I, I've told several of you, I was worried about what would happen to me once we lost Braden. I would be fine until then, and then I didn't know. Because I've, I've been through so much death in my life, and, and it's tipped me over a lot of times. But I have the tools of grief and the hope of resurrection to be able to do that, to remove that grief from my heart. And you've got to remove anger from your heart. I lived as a very angry 
person because I lived with a man who was angry. And when he was done being angry, I took over the job. When he was done abusing me, I took over the job of abusing me. And, and, and when I realized I had to let go of that anger and get that out of my heart, I'm a pretty lighthearted guy. I joke about it. I take very little seriously. I certainly don't take me seriously. So that means I'm not going to take you seriously, right? I just, I, I kind of go through life making fun of it because I know it doesn't mean anything. And so the anger is gone and the grief is gone. The third thing that we'll do, and many of you know this, chronic pain will just rob you of any joy in your life. So what does the Bible say? Here's the things you need to avoid if you can. You want to avoid grief. Now, don't avoid the fact that there's something that makes you grieve. The way you avoid grief taking hold in your heart is you express that grief. The way you get rid of the anger is you, you're angry and sin not. You've got to not let the sun go down. You want to get rid of it. How do you get rid of it? You express it appropriately, expressed at the time that you have it so you don't build it up. Because those two things, grief and anger, will lock into your heart. They'll start filling up as a bucket. And then something will trigger you and you will vomit that stuff all over everybody. Now, it's not the same way with joy or happiness. We don't stuff joy or happiness. Somebody does a little thing, what the heck was that? We're all angry because that anger, we're having an anger vomit. Or something happens and we're sad and we have, a, we have a grief vomit, right? But you never have a happiness vomit. You never go down and you see somebody, <laughs> you don't do that because it's not there. You don't stuff that. That's in the moment. You've got to live in the moment if you want to find happiness. If you want to have joy, that's in the moment. And it's right there when you're eating a sandwich and you're having a Coke, right? It's when you're talking with somebody and, you're, and you know, you're just joking about stuff and you're not taking anything seriously. But you, boy, chronic pain, grief, and anger, those things will rob you. Just rob you. And you're not going to leave them to anybody. They'll die with you. So the scripture tells us to get rid of those things. And he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. One of the keys to life is to get connected and, and walking passionately with the Lord in your youth. Because walking gets harder as you get older. In both the metaphoric and the real sense. And you don't want to try to learn the spiritual disciplines then. You need them already in place. And so this, this is great stuff. Accepting that hardship is the pathway to peace. Now James tells us, and we've looked at this verse, James 1, 2-4. Uh, Consider it joy, my brethren, when you enter into diverse trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith Produces maturity. Now, I have in the last year faced one of the hardest times of my life with the loss of Braden. And yet, in my faith, there has been no crisis. 
because I know whom I have believed. And I know what's there. I'm assured of those things. And in the struggling, it has not knocked me over. It's made me more firm in what I hope for and what I believe. And that's what, that's what James is talking about. Uh, there is a joy in knowing the genuineness of your faith. And that will only be tested in the storms of life. And then 1 Peter talks about this as well. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 1 and 2 he says, Therefore since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There is a notion that we are going to suffer. We need the courage to endure the suffering of obedience. And the suffering of obedience is that we will suffer persecution and temptation. Testing and persecution are our lot. But they become the thing that strengthens us. So the truth is, hardship is the pathway to peace with God. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, You have known my faith and my struggles and my sufferings and my persecutions. You have known this. You've watched it in me. I'm an example of this to you, Timothy. Don't avoid those. Don't avoid the sufferings that bring you to maturity. But avoid the grief, the pain, and the chronic illness in the body that robs you of the joy of the Lord. Then he says in the prayer, taking as he did the sinf this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Sometimes we have difficulty with reality. We can be overly pessimistic. We can be overly optimistic. But we're to see this world as it is. Created good, but flawed by sin and evil. And navigating through the good and the evil requires a trust that God knows what he's doing and that God knows what's going on. And so the prayer here, for the first time, refers to Jesus, uses the pronoun he, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is and not as I would have it. We shouldn't be naive about the world. There is good in the world. God created the world good, but there is evil in the world. And the evil is not so much in the creation as it is in the human condition. So one of my favorite verses, you don't see this one preached very much, is in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 23. <clears throat> John two twenty-three. It says, now when he, again the he for Jesus, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Boy, everybody loves Jesus when he's doing good stuff, right? So 
Everybody wants to be his friend. The next verse is fascinating. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. You've got to know human nature. Human nature is basically selfish. And if you know that, you're going to only entrust yourself to people that have proven that they can be trustworthy. We live in a culture that says, trust people because people are basically good. And that isn't true. And that sets you up for terrible difficulties. So you wait and see if somebody can be trusted. And if they demonstrate that they're trustworthy, then you trust them. That's the Jesus way of trusting. I like that. So I entrust myself to people who prove that they can be trusted. Other than that, I know what is in mankind. People want to be around you, not because they want to help you, mostly for what they can get. And then when you can no longer do that, you don't see it much anymore. And that's human nature. Jesus knew that about He didn't need anybody to testify to that. He knew that. We should know that. That's part of the biblical worldview, is that there's good in this world, but, there, but human nature is problematic. The other one is Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. You know this. Jesus was a great high priest for us, is a great high priest for us, because he was in all points tempted like we are, and yet without sin. He knows my tendencies because he's been through the temptations I've been. The difference is he overcame them. And he becomes my intercessor with the Father. He becomes my sacrifice. He becomes a way for me to let those things go. To turn from my sin and to walk in obedience to him. Because he gets it. He's been there. He knows what we're going through. So, since he took this world as it is, we can take this world, this sinful world, as it is and not the way we want it to be. Because the way we want it to be is back to trying to change the things we can't change. Human nature is not going to change. The human condition is not going to change. We come into the kingdom awaiting the ultimate change that will take place when we're raised from the dead and the flesh will be no more. Then the line, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. Wow. I want to make all things right. I got a little bit of Abraham in me. Okay. God, you're taking too long. Let me let me handle this, right? Hagar, come over here, right? This this notion of uh let's help God. All over the campus at the university, I hear students saying I want to do great things for God. I want to do great things for God. That is not the biblical worldview. That's not this prayer. Here's here's what this line is saying. It's his job to fix the world. You can't change it. All you can change is have the courage to be obedient to him in the midst of this world. So you do his will and let him change the world. 
And he will change the world when the kingdom comes. Right? That, so enjoy today. Enjoy the moment. Stay focused on that. And don't get caught in all this mess. Now you can see why this is such an important prayer for the recovery movement. Because a lot of people turn to drugs and a lot of people turn to alcohol and a lot of people turn to sex and a lot of people turn to every kind of escape you can because they can't change the world and they keep trying. And they won't face that they need to have the courage to change themselves in obedience to God. Trusting that He will make all things right if I surrender to His will. So we walk by faith and not by sight, trusting that God will ultimately make things right in the kingdom to come and the new creation so we can walk now in obedience rather than trying to change the world. And if after I walk this path, the next person comes along and walks it different, that's not my problem. My job is to be faithful to God while I have breath. In Leviticus 18, 1-4, God says to Israel, I don't want you walking like the Egyptians. I don't want you walking like the Canaanites where I'm taking you. You're not going to walk in their ways. You're going to walk in my ways. I am Kadosh. You will be Kadosh. I am holy. I'm set apart. You're going to be set apart. You're going to walk in my ways. You're not going to walk as the world walks. You're going to walk as I walk. And of course, we read that verse earlier today, Romans 12. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to demonstrate what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and complete. Those things are walking in God's ways. It goes right back to the beginning of this prayer. We try so hard to walk in the ways of the world and make them biblical. We put Bible verses on cultural behavior and think we're being biblical instead of walking the biblical way. That more narrow way, that, that path that is illuminated by God's word rather than by our culture. So why am I doing all this? What's the point of this? The very last line I find to be brilliant. That I may be reasonably happy in this life. <laughs> wow. Now there is a dropping of expectation. Reasonably happy. So I drive the 91 freeway and it takes four hours to get what usually takes 20 minutes. But I made it safely to the other side. I'm reasonably happy. <laughs> I work on an IKEA project, even reading the directions. And the table is relatively stable. 
I'm reasonably happy. <laughs> My expectations are a little lowered. Okay? We get into an argument. We cut ourselves a little sooner this time than last time. I'm reasonably happy. What's your goal for I'm just trying to be reasonably happy in this life? I like that. Okay? I may get a t-shirt that says, I'm working on being reasonably happy. Get out of my way. You know, something like that. Wow. Now there's a goal I could reach. And supremely happy with him forever in the next life. While we look at the things which are seen that are temporary, we'll be reasonably happy with them. But the things which are not seen are eternal. And we will be supremely happy. Eye has not seen ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the imagination of man the things which God has prepared for us. So just be reasonably happy here. Don't try to fix this world. Just navigate it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things that make you reasonably happy will be added unto you. If we try to change what we cannot change in this life, even when with good motives, we waste our time. If we fail to obey God through suffering with courage, we fail as stewards of God. And if we forego the wisdom offered by God through His Word and by His Spirit, we truly become fools. So here's how that prayer goes. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace taking as he did this sinful world as it is and not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this simple prayer that was put together drawing from your word. A prayer that has comforted many going through suffering and one that can give wisdom and guidance to us and to our children if we will learn its simple secrets and understand that we walk by faith. So God, help us to appropriate this prayer, not as magic words, but as a reminder 
so that as we pray it, we will remember that you are God and we are just breathing dirt. And yet your love and grace is upon us so that you will help us to be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you in the world to come. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right.